Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, Solar Warriors, welcome back to this long form interview on Thursdays as we tend to get into here with founders and leaders in the clean tech and clean energy revolution. Thanks so much for tuning in, lending me your ears, and hey, the only non-renewable resource that you've got, that's your time. Promise to take good care of it and you while you are here. Recognize that you could be anywhere, so thank you, truly. Today's entrepreneur is not going to let you down and is no stranger to the world of distributed energy. Many of you have reached out and said, Nico, when are we gonna get into talking about the uh, clean electric vehicle revolution and the infrastructure required. Well, as you know, we've definitely had folks here on the show talking about electric vehicle infrastructure and electric cars, and we'll have more. And I'm inspired by today's guest, Mr. Ram Ambatapudi, who's the VP of Business Development and Utility Engagement at EV Connect. He's also one of the original investors and co-founders but his story goes so much further than the story of EV Connect. So logically, that's what we do here on Suncast. We look into how he helped scale the renewables division of Chevron Energy to almost two gigawatts of solar projects in the middle part of this uh, early century here. Uh, Ryan and I have some stories going back to that time uh, when he was learning how to scale solar for Chevron and I was competing against him. So I hope you'll enjoy those stories. We also get into the mission that EV Connect is on to build a better planet, enabling electricity as a transportation fuel. What does that mean? We are definitely going to talk more about that. And customers like Love's Travel Stop, Verizon, Marriott, Hilton, Taco Bell, Electrify America, the list goes on. Before I talk to Ram, I didn't know much about EV Connect. Today, you and I are going to know so, so much more. And hey, if you like what you hear, I do hope that you'll subscribe to the show in whatever podcast app or player you prefer. Are you like 35% of the market using Spotify? Did you know that Spotify, according to Coleman Insights, just overtook Apple for the number one podcast player? Well, listen, if you're in Spotify and maybe you clicked through our chartable link or something like that, just click on that little image of Suncast, look in the the hamburger menu there, hit go to podcast, and that will show you how you can follow the Suncast podcast. So in iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, it's called subscribe, and Pocket Cast, I think it's called subscribe, and in Spotify, it's called follow. I'd ask you to do two things, hit that follow button, and then hit the little bell right to the right of it so you get a notification on your phone whenever the next episode is out. And hey, if you don't like notifications on your phone, but you do like email, why don't you subscribe to our newsletter over at mysuncast.com. That's where you can check out, you know, the back catalog of more than 390 additional founder stories and startup advice. And you can put in your email and I promise we will not accost you or try to take your money. We will just let you know when more good content like this has 
come out. And hey, speaking of coming out, I hope that you're going to come out of your shell like many of us are and meet me in New Orleans in September. If you are, would you text me 310-634-1780 and let me know that you're going to be there. We are just announcing, I think today, that we are partnered with Solar Power Events and the Power Up Central Podcast Lounge and Media Zone, right beside Sun Power, right there in the narthex, in the front of the trade show. Come by and see us. And, you know, maybe we'll get your story on Suncast there as well. Listen, I could go on and on about the many ways that we could connect, but I do hope that you'll text me 310-634-1780 or that you'll follow me and, and let's connect over on LinkedIn. In the meantime, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation with my friend Ram Ambatipudi, co-founder, first investor of EV Connect here on Suncast. I am super excited about this interview today with Ram Ambatipudi. As I mentioned in the intro, Ram is one of the co-founders and early investors into EV Connect, a company that we'll talk about today. But I have known of Ram for quite a while. Uh, he was a competitor when I was doing distributed generation back in my solar sales days. And I admired a lot of things about how he and his team built uh, their uh, process and huge success at a little company you guys will be familiar with called Chevron. If you're at all interested in how that strategy comes together and how to bridge the gap between renewables and the EV infrastructure boom that we are seeing right now, you'll want to stay right there in your seats because this is going to be a fascinating conversation. First, let me welcome Ram Ambatipudi to the show. He's the VP of Business Development and Utility Engagement at EV Connect. Welcome to Suncast, Ram. Thank you very much, Nico. It's great to be here with you today. I want to give a hat tip to our friends at Technica who continually bring fantastic guests like you into my sphere of influence. I'm grateful for Caitlin and the team over at Technica Communications who helped make this interview possible. It's almost hard for me to know where to start because there's so much about your career that I'm really genuinely curious about. One of the things that I often try to draw an early connection or understanding around is the concept of entrepreneur and intrapreneur uh, nature and nurture. You grew up in India, uh, moved around and finally settled in the United States. Uh, I'd like to hear two aspects of your childhood that I perceive perhaps influenced the, the career path that you've chosen. The first is how does that multicultural experience and in fact, like moving around as in your youth, how does it influence the way that you think about uh, the way you show up at work and how you want to make an impact? And then the second piece of that is, was there a particular entrepreneurial bent in your family? Maybe your parents, maybe other extended family members that in some way influenced the way that you think about building business. So the first is uh, back to your roots. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question, Nico. Um, I had the opportunity to really uh, experience both, you know, India and uh, and the USA at a very early age. Uh, growing up, I was born in India moved to the U.S., moved back to India, moved back to the U.S. before e eventually settling down around middle school in, in California. I think that experience really opened me up to 
you know, different communities, different cultures. Uh, at a very uh, early age, I was exposed to a lot of diversity in in not only people, but languages and in, in, in cultures, in ways that they do things. And, and I think both consciously and unconsciously that that has most certainly played a part in my development uh, as an individual over time. I think uh, your second question about family or other influences that led me to, um, you know, get interested in, in entrepreneurship, I would I would really point to a couple of my uncles in India that, you know, really started to to focus their career on more business development and sales and management type of uh, roles, which were traditionally apart from where a lot of my, you know, family lineage, you know, used to used to go in their career directions. And that that uh, really kind of inspired me to, you know, not necessarily think of myself as constrained in, in, in my, you know, career choices uh, as I became older. I love that. It's easier as we get into our, I think, late 30s, 40s, and even older uh, to look back and be able to draw these conclusions, right? It's not always so easy in your 20s to think, oh, it's, you know, I'm following the path of some person in my family or they've influenced this. Um, did you, you know, your career early on started in uh, first regulated and then unregulated utilities uh, with a gas and then uh, gas company in Southern California and then later Enron. Was that something that you chose as a path or like many of us, did you sort of stumble forward out of MBA and find a, a good job that sort of played to your skill set. Can you tell me a little about that? I don't think it was a conscious decision to go into the you know the energy utility space. Uh, those were those were doors that opened themselves up to me, uh, for me, but it was uh, um, a conscious effort for me to move into customer facing interactions. Prior to joining Southern California Gas Company, I was in I was with another big company, AT and T where there was a lot of much more of a hard, hard sales environment with quotas and, and calls and, you know, very, very, you know, regimented and, 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 you know, very, you know, detailed in terms of how they basically evaluate your success. But I wanted to get out of that into more of a consultative, you know, uh, customer facing engagement and found, found the opportunity with Southern California Gas Company where I basically was in charge of um, handling the relationships with some very large governmental sector customers like L.A. County, L.A. Metro, City of Los Angeles, L.A. Unified School District. So it, it gave me a whole new perspective on the public sector market. And uh, that's something I've, I've used, uh, you know, in my career since then to, to, to good use. Indeed you have. Yes, we will talk all about that because I have lots of questions. I didn't know that about AT&T. That's really fascinating. The awareness of what you wanted, uh, more of a consultative biz dev role that allowed you to engage in that consultative selling model that many of us have learned to employ now in, uh, in the solar industry as we have to compel folks that this is the right path forward. Uh, and I guess with that, I'll ask a question that many listeners are more familiar with, which is how did you find your way into clean energy? And you, you like many of us, took your first steps into solar. Tell me about SoulSource. 
My first exposure to energy, as I mentioned, came through um, Southern California Gas Company, where I, where I was involved with like demand side management and energy management strategies. I even got a little bit of background in working with natural gas vehicles for some of these large governmental fleets. At Enron, I started to broaden my out, you know, outlook a little bit in terms of the fact that uh, Enron had a wind company that it acquired and it was doing different types of renewable activities and building like a clean energy option for their, for their retail electricity portfolio. It wasn't until I decided to move back to Southern California and I found this opportunity with a company called Clean Fuel Connection that had been through the wars and the first EV rollout phase. That was a, a, a experiencing a lot of, you know, slowdown basically at the, at the time with all the activities with GM and, 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 and those things. So they decided, okay, why don't, we, why don't we throw our hat into the emerging solar PV space? So with my background, they brought me in to basically create a division from scratch. And I didn't have any firsthand knowledge about solar stepping into that job. And I just threw myself into it. Learned it from the ground up, you know, started with small residential, shifted to large residential, did small commercial, shifted to large commercial. And it was just an evolution uh, of, you know, incorporating learnings, you know, broadening my network and, and, and starting to work on bigger, more complicated projects over time. For those unfamiliar, the time frame that we're talking about Obviously, if you are aware of the first EV rollout circa 2001 uh, with GM effectively killing the electric car, as the video or as the movie tells us, the time frame for SoulSource is uh, roughly 2003. Could you help us understand what was it like trying to, to figure out where you were best suited as a team to target a specific customer type? Like how did you actually think about making that evaluation in 2003 when solar, like there was no solar city, there was no, I mean, uh, there were some power and a few others, but this was a complete blue ocean at the time. It absolutely was. Uh, 2003 was very early days in, in, in solar with, you know, to, to date myself, I think the cost per watt on projects was over $10 a watt. And <laughs> You know, it was, it was crazy days. And, you know, as a, as a small company in a, in, in a very nation space, the, the, the approach that uh, we took was basically to try and uh, leverage some of the, the relationships that, that I had or, or the previous founders in Clean Fuel Connection had with our partners to, to just get an inroads into smaller projects to, to, to understand, you know, how to deliver, how to design, engineer, construct, you know, structure those kind of projects. And, and we started very small projects, you know, residential projects, two, two three kilowatt projects uh, before we pretty rapidly started getting into 30 to 100 kilowatt projects. And, th and those were very large projects at the time. The process of, of really engaging with customers around such a uh, new technology was, was something that was, you know, really interesting because they were interested in the concept of solar, but did not really know how to put it into action. So I think a small consultative company like us were able to kind of hold their hand through that process 
and create you know a, a platform from which our customers could expand their their procurements and activities going forward. Am I right that Solar City acquired? I mean, it says on LinkedIn. I wasn't familiar with that story that Solar City acquired SolSource. Yeah, ultimately, um, I, I left uh, SolSource around 2005, and I believe Solar City acquired SolSource around 2007. And, and basically became part of now, what is now Tesla Solar. Was that uh, more of a, it sounds like you guys had developed a robust CNI platform at that point. Was that, that, is that what SolarCity was interested in? They were, yeah. We had started to do projects with customers like LA Metro and you know, cities. And, and, and so the expertise that we had started to develop with the design and the, and the engineering and construction of these projects was something that, that Solar City wanted to bring on board as they were starting to think about expanding beyond residential. As you mentioned, at the time you had already moved on. What prompted the move from SolSource to Chevron, where there at the time was still a very nascent, I, I perceive, approach to integrating solar and, and renewables into Chevron's business? Yeah, as a small mom and pop developer, which is really what what SoulSource was at the time, it was very constrained in terms of the size of the projects, the scale of the projects. Once you start getting into the need to bond, you know, projects, you have to you have to start, you know, having the 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 financial capabilities to take on those kind of risks. And and so it it quickly became clear to me that there was going to be you know, uh, a point where my ambitions to do bigger and bigger projects was going to be difficult for SolSource to support. That was the very that was a very different dynamic with Chevron. Chevron had just started to do some projects, but they were looking for someone to really come in to accelerate the growth into solar. So I was able to leverage my my experience that I had built to date, bring it into Chevron and helped to put together the strategy to really make solar a key component of their energy solutions offering. So I have you to thank for all the the municipal projects (laughs) that I lost to Chevron. That's, uh, that's comforting. (laughs) Um, roughly how, uh, how long was the gap between you leaving SolSource and SolarCity acquiring them? About two years. Two years. I mean, by that time you, uh, you had already built a compelling business proposition in Chevron. I was going to ask if you ever think back to that and think, what would it have been like? Did you regret like not getting a chance to play in the Solar City sandbox? I, I don't think I um, recall, you know, ever regretting, you know, leaving um, SolSource for, for what ultimately ended up being the, the Solar City sandbox. I do think that there was so much opportunity to create something and continue to grow it and grow it maybe through the infusion of external capital, grow a development shop to a sizable portfolio. We're seeing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm firsthand involved with so many developers today that are, that are doing such a fantastic job of creating a development platform using, you know, very well-developed methods to rinse and repeat, you know, the development formula to grow portfolios of, you know, hundreds of megawatts, which they're able to then, you know, monetized to 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 buyers in, in in the market. So that that's that's something that was not really viable at you know back in two thousand and five, but but quickly 
you know, became something that that uh, that a lot of developers were able to to um, take advantage of in the in the coming years. Yeah, yeah, it would have still taken another. I'll call it six years. Twenty eleven was really when we started seeing platforms kind of become monetizable. That is a long journey as an entrepreneur or entrepreneur, as I think um, most rightly you might be have might have been deemed at the time. Um, you're certainly right. an entrepreneur now. Was there any career path that perhaps as a as a child or even in kind of coming coming into school and MBA always thought you would go down, but ended up never working out? Besides being a sports broadcaster, <laughs> that's um, what I mean exactly, right? And so, I mean, so sports yeah, broadcasting. Well, yeah, when I was when I was an undergrad at UCLA, I was uh, part of the radio station and did play-by-play and color commentary for UCLA football, UCLA basketball, baseball, and got media credentials uh, to to the Rams and the Lakers and the Dodgers and so I mean I I, I to this day I remain uh, just a massive sports fan and at the time had had some ambitions to go into sports broadcasting but uh, the practical side of me sort of took over and uh, decided to 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 go into more of a business uh, you know uh, leading uh, career. I love it. Well, that's what makes you so good off the cuff. Uh, I'm certain uh, you cannot do uh, any sort of live broadcasting without cultivating the ability to respond in real time to what's happening. And in fact, I would argue that uh, given I know a thing or three about your business development career, uh, it is a skill that you were able to harvest later in life. So with that in mind, what other tools from those previous roles, as you arrived at Chevron and even now with EV Connect, do you look back and think, oh, this is a skill that I harvested uh, or that I'm harvesting now, seeds I planted 20 years ago? Some of the things that really started to uh, become apparent to me at a pretty early age in my career was the important role that utilities play, you know, in, in the overall mix. A lot of folks I have found over over the years see utilities as the as the either the enemy or someone that's holding back the transition, I've seen it very differently. I've always viewed utilities as a critical part of the of the ecosystem, and in many ways, collaborators and partners towards achieving our our overall goals. So I would I would definitely put that as 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 an important lesson learned that that I continue to use you know, today in, in how I interact with, uh, with utilities. Secondly, the importance of policy. In many situations, what, what we do is a flow down of what someone else really helped to shape at the rulemaking or policy or goals or mandates type of stage. It's so important to be an active participant at that, you know, sausage making stage, if you if you will, because that really shapes the 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 market and business opportunities downstream. And I've started to realize the 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 prime the primacy of that and the the critical importance of that throughout my career. And I can't think of a more important time than today as to how important a role that's going to play in shaping our, you know, climate strategies going forward. I concur with you. And I say often from this platform, many of our brethren will rue the day they 
claimed sort of the utility as the negative Nelly and the naysayer, and that they let other people deal with policy while they were at busy building their business. Because without that engagement, which organizations like CALSA and SIA and SIPA have played beautiful jobs, uh, and the ESA have done amazing role uh, jobs in helping bridge the gap. I think SIPA more than most others has done a beautiful service to the industry of helping the utilities figure out how to integrate this as, I mean, they, they have very specific mandates and very specific rules they have to follow. And, and so do policymakers. I think folks oversimplify the many different ways that uh, they can hindered from making decisions and moving forward. I think you and I got a chance firsthand in California in 2007, eight, nine, 10, uh, Working with a lot of municipalities, city of San Jose, the many, many school districts you stole from my willing grasp with <laughs> Chevron. Uh, I'm going to keep beating on it because I think it's just such a, it's such an apropos example. I think that nobody in our industry did a better job than Chevron in the late aughts of positioning the cities and the school districts for how to integrate solar. Can you talk a bit about how what we just discussed informed that business strategy and, and how you activated it at Chevron? It's really important to understand how to bring together all of the components to create a successful project. You have to be able to leverage the, the programs, the funding, the incentives, the rebates that are, that are out there and bring them to market. And having an intimate knowledge of, of, of those can be a real competitive differentiator. I, I can recall winning projects because I was able to bring a rebate or an incentive to the table that nobody else either knew about or took the initiative to do that. And, and ultimately, that, that, that one helped to win us the project. So knowing what's out there, categorizing them, bringing to the table is, is extremely important. From just the uh, uh, solution perspective, understanding what the, the key points to, to your clients are, whether it's financing, whether it's uh, ongoing operation and maintenance, whether it's performance guarantees, where, you know, it, it can be so many different things. Understanding what those critical hot buttons are making sure you you incorporate that into the solution and then you know where where possible build competitive moats right if uh, we have we're offering you know some things that that our competitors either weren't or 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 had difficulty to 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 offer stress the importance of that <laughs> to 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 customers and make them understand that that is something that they shouldn't need to live without and and so that gets baked into an RFP it goes out into the street and and hopefully that that creates you know two or three or four different you know key differentiators uh you know for ultimate selection it's almost unfair because you and I know like the many examples of stories uh <laughs> that you probably even can't aren't at liberty to share but but could you give me an example from I don't know what you're at liberty to share it's been so long it's been a decade but can you give me an example of one of the things you realized early on would give, uh, in this case, Chevron, a key competitive advantage where it would create that competitive moat. It would limit others from being able to respond and it would ensure that you had essentially written the RFP for yourself. 
I think one good uh, example is just in the ability to bundle you know, together uh, different things. Uh, I, I can recall some very successful projects we did with, uh, for example, LA Metro, where we bundled together a whole host of energy efficiency, you know, features with lighting and HVAC and energy management systems and, and, and bundled that together with a megawatt of solar. Also tying together the financing and, and, and putting to bear low cost, you know, tax exempt, you know, lease purchase financing. Sometimes it helps to, I hate to say this, but sometimes it helps to make things more complicated, you know, and then pull together the solution um, in, in, a, in a very unique way where you're creating a lot of value for the customer to, to exactly solve their, their needs and their pain point. What guidance would you give someone listening who's trying to figure out now um, broadly around infrastructure? Could be solar energy storage, electric vehicle infrastructure. What would be useful for them to think about or how could they think about approaching the reality that these deals are one in the boardroom and you have to understand the stakeholders, like you said, their needs, but you also have to understand how to get to them. In my career, I found that it helps to be a little bit of a generalist. When you're able to converse very comfortably about you know, the supply chain, the, the, the EPC component, the power markets and the you know, power purchase, the financing and, and the different options there, it increases your credibility. Uh, what I found too, too often is uh, folks are getting very siloed you know, into becoming you know, super proficient at one or more of, of those. But when you're in a business development setting and, and your, your, your role is to, to, you know, basically, you know, create business from scratch, it's really important to have that grounding, you know, and that basic understanding of, of, a, of a wide range of topics and then bring in subject matter experts as you need to, to, to you know, to round out the solution. Yeah, it's so interesting that um, that you bring up this exact point. And it's funny how the serendipity, I've, I, I opened and started listening to a book that I'll mention in a second, months ago. And I quite li literally just yesterday uh, started looking at or listening to it again on a bike ride. It's a book exactly on that topic called Range. Have you read this book? I have not. Range. So Suncast listeners are used to books being recommended here. So I'll recommend this one for you because it actually is one that you'll want to share with your media friends. So uh, I've long uh, held the belief that it's powerful, especially in a sales and biz dev role to have range, to not be siloed. Uh, that's what your sales tech or technical sales folks and your uh, you know ops folks are for. The book's called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. The author is a guy named David Epstein, who also wrote a book called The Sports Gene. So I particularly think that you will be fascinated by this book if you haven't listened oh, yeah. to it. He goes into things as wide ranging as Gary Kasparov's delve into using AI to build centaurs for chess matches and specifically talks about the ability for strategic thinking as a generalist's role. It speaks, I mean, I, I won't go into depth here, but it speaks in broad uh, stance to exactly what you're saying, uh, the, this ability to, as we call it in the old days, build a, a pink sheet or a blue sheet in, uh, in large account management, um, 
process to understand the champion, to understand who the key stakeholders are and decision makers in the buying process, to be able to accurately and uh, to understand them and influence their decisions, to present them with value propositions that not only meet their needs, but can't be filled by everyone. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and to be able to do that in an elegant way, like you just exam- you just showed as an example of this LA Metro project, being able to bundle. Uh, I mean, in these days, folks won't, um, maybe won't recognize how hard this was back then. Like we had, you know, a handful of companies I could rattle off solar power partners and sun Edison being two of the big ones in Northern California that you routinely partnered with and competed against. But it was hard to be able to actually bring the development team, the finance team, and energy efficiency together. Like it wasn't so complicated to bring in solar and financing. Uh, hard, but not undoable, not, not impossible. But where I saw you guys win all the time was you would basically go in and write these almost ESCO style contracts, energy service contracts with cities on the premise of energy savings. And you were using solar as a value add. And that was just something that, I mean, and in 2010, it was just so difficult for most solar companies to be able to wrap their head around that many uh, parameters and to be able to offer to such extent that I actually went to the Pacific Energy Center and started taking classes on energy auditing because <laughs> I, kept, I kept seeing these deals come across where energy efficiency uh, was like one of the linchpins that Chevron was using to win the deals. And I'm like, God, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out. I'm going to start offering energy services. So I, I thank you for that because I learned a decade ago the value of this, um, of this lesson. Uh, and I hope, I'm, I'm sure that there are folks being served by this right now who are listening. And, you know, just that, just that approach, I think, also helped me to migrate Pretty pretty easily from like solar to, to EVs, you know, where where they're you know on the surface, you know, very very different, and and it's hard to see the connections between the two. I think that my my background and and that kind of generalist aspect helped me to 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 make that transition, you know, very very quickly. A hundred percent agree with you on that one. Uh, and that's actually something I was going to bring in here because right now we're seeing a massive need right now fleet management. Uh, I mean, anyone who's paying attention in the energy and automobile sector right now is aware of the the velocity with which electric vehicles are grabbing attention. Prescient would be a word that I would use for your career because you've been prescient in uh, foreseeing these markets. All the way back in 2008, you see invested in this company that uh, you know now many people know it's been around for 12 years, almost 13 years, called EV Connect. Uh, tell me what you saw in 2008 that inspired you to invest and co-found EV Connect at a time when nobody had electric cars unless you were, in, <laughs> you know, a very wealthy, mostly Bay Area startup founder who bought a Tesla Roadster. Yeah, uh, you know, so uh, I had start kind of dip my toes into the alternative um vehicle space uh, through my aforementioned uh, Southern California gas company, natural gas vehicle, you know, uh, support. And then also in uh, prior experience with clean fuel connection, which was did the first wave of EV charging infrastructure. So I had I, I had developed an interest in in you know what what that next wave of, of of EVs and whether it would really be sustainable or whether it would be a you know a science experiment if you will, and then I really started to get 
couple of different people talking to me about ideas that they had about you know what they wanted to do in this space, including who uh, a gentleman named Jordan Raymer, who is now uh, the uh, continues to be the this chairman uh, and uh, chief executive officer at EV Connect. And I basically put two or three people that were separately talking to me together, you know, and connected them together. They started, they were more of the experts, honestly. They, they started talking amongst themselves, decided that, hey, we think that there's a company here that we should form and be an early entrant into this space. So my role, honestly, was to bring the people together, help to foster those discussions. And once they decided to launch the company, I wasn't prepared to leave Chevron and what I was doing in, in solar at the time. So, so I, I was a co-founder and the first seed investor in the company, but I kind of let them go on their merry way uh, while staying you know, pretty, pretty close to it um, and getting updates on it on a regular basis. What did that early value proposition for EV Connect look like? Um, and, and I'm curious, the evolution over 12 years, almost 13 years of this was our idea and this is how it has changed. Uh, I was going to ask you like how you had mentioned to me before, how you brought the uh, the founding team together. Thank you for addressing that without me having to ask. Uh, how did that, how did the idea of EV Connect evolve from what it was at the, at the very beginning to what now we will talk about as what is it that you guys refer to it as the world's leading platform for managing electricity as a fuel? The early years were very much trial and error, start and go, you know, whatever you want to use for a very, very early market. Um, the vehicles weren't there. The, the, the charging stations were somewhat uh, immature. The, the whole idea of management of these stations was, you know, was, was still kind of a foreign concept. And so we, we like to talk about ourselves uh, and say that we're a, a 14 year old company in a 12 year old industry, you know, something to that effect. <laughs> but we, we were way earlier than, than, than when the market started to take off. So it was, it was difficult for my partners that were kind of in this full time to, to find a, a mooring in this space. It was as, you know, again, uh, I want to bring up utilities, you know, it was as some of these utilities and state agencies started to seed the market, you know, for, for, for some funding to deploy charging stations. And some of the public sector agencies were the first ones that, that really stepped up to support, you know, charging stations. EV Connect got a foothold in, in some of the, the, the early, you know, market development in California and then later New York. It was both as a project developer, but also as an integrator. Over the next few years, the opportunity started to become clear that in addition to just the installing and deploying the charge stations, there was a real need for the management of networks of charging stations. And that's where the concept of a software platform that could communicate with the stations, that could provide services to facilities that deploy the charging stations, for utilities to help them manage the impact of charging stations on the grid. All of those things started to come to the forefront and the, 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 the idea of a network management platform to, to manage the EV infrastructure, uh, you know, th that, that sort of became, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the focus of the company over, uh, and, and as it is currently. 
That's fascinating. You know, you and I talked about having both uh, being Tesla owners and uh, appreciating Tesla's almost Apple-esque closed architecture build out. One of my struggles, and I know I talk with my friend Ethan Lipman about this all the time because he's a huge advocate for open architecture. And I think, I don't know what the ISO is. It's like ISO 1558 or something like that. Like he's, you probably know which one that is. 15118. 15118. There's a huge disparity in the marketplace around how we are going to integrate not just all of the charging infrastructure, but just a disconnect for people to understand how, (laughs) what's required on the grid to have this level of capacity to charge vehicles. Can you help me understand then like why there still today isn't really a platform that helped? Like I can, uh, there's a handful of platforms that'll tell me where charging stations are. Uh, I got to download like 17 apps to cross, you know, two state lines just in case I want to charge on a charge point versus an EV go. Like why still the disconnect and the closed system architecture in a world where, you know, the Biden administration is admittedly going to infuse millions, probably billions of dollars into this. Yeah. You know, I think we're right at the the nexus of how to scale this industry, right? In the early stages, you know, Tesla really kind of took the, the you know, the the lead in terms of the uh, the vehicles and they, they, to their credit, they, they understood early on that you had to have a very easy experience for customers to charge their vehicles. So they were, they got, they were on the forefront to, to d- deploy a fast charging uh, network, put some destination chargers into hotels and other areas. And, and the, the development of, of standards, you know, was, was kind of happening in parallel, but Tesla just went full gung ho on, on, on doing what they were doing. And, you know, honestly, it's a great network. I, I just did a long road trip to the Bay Area and back, and used Tesla chargers along the way, and they and they work great. But as you as as you fast forward, we have maybe you know two hundred thousand chargers, you know, you know across you know the the U.S. with commercial chargers today. That's got to scale to you know multi-millions of chargers. And the problem that you illustrated is, is exactly correct, which is you don't want to inconvenience the drivers, uh, you know, to, to figure out, you know, uh, you know, multiple apps and multiple standards and, and multiple connector types. And this has to be as easy as possible to incentivize the shift from, you know, uh, ICE vehicles to to electric vehicles. So that's where the 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 importance of of open standards and interoperability really come to play. We have to create a market that where you know a lot of different hardware manufacturers can come to the table with innovative products. They can connect and and integrate with software platforms that manage a wide network of charging stations. And all of those can essentially interoperate with each other um, seamlessly. And and that's that's where we need to head as an industry because you know the the the, the rapid rise of, of electric vehicles for both consumer and fleet applications is is um, you know the time is now. There's there's an urgency to this. Yeah. And I know, uh, Ethan, if he's listening to this, is just applauding right now because it's so hard to get people to say this in the industry. Uh, one of the examples he's, uh, he and I've talked about before 
I almost wish he could be on this call because he'd ask so much better questions. He's so deep. He actually worked at ChargePoint and EVGo. Um, so Ethan, thank you for everything that you've explained to me in the past to help me even be uh, ready for a conversation like this uh, is just understanding uh, why we have this closed architecture. Um, there's, there's a couple of questions that I think I want to ask you, and I'm not sure if this is the right order. So I'll let you help me decide. The first is how do we collaborate compared to where it's clear that we can and should compete on this infrastructure? That's the first question. The second is what lessons from the pandemic can be learned uh, about shared responsibility? You know, if, if we're all in this together, we all have to wear a mask and protect ourselves against this invisible enemy. Are there parallels to how we should collaborate the way that our government has collaborated with Pfizer and Moderna and others to create this public good that we can distribute at a much lower cost, both to consumers from a pain perspective, to consumers from an acceptance perspective? You know, on the first one, it's a very interesting question because the, the market is really taking shape right now, you know, with, with uh, players that are doing just development of EV charge station hardware. And then there's folks that are doing just EV management software. And then there's folks like, you know, that are doing a little bit of the combination of both. And, and so as in this kind of a market environment, people are looking to develop some moats, you know, some competitive uh, barriers and differentiators. But I think I think the focus has to right now be collectively on a simpler charging experience and the ability to integrate all these diverse charging stations and charging ports onto uh, the grid and have uh, and and enable them for grid management and again kind of tying together the utility theme that 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 we spoke about earlier. If if these stations are are dumb or non-networked or or, or part of a closed proprietary loop, it makes it harder for uh, th- these stations to be essentially distributed energy resources that can be managed by the grid. And and you need to get the data from these stations. You need to know what the load patterns are. You need to know they can impact time of use rates. They can they can be, you know, uh, managed and curtailed in the event of grid events. This is the kind of, you know, interconnected dynamic, you know, grid that we have to create that interfaces with all of these um you know, charging stations and, and EVs that are that are distributed, and uh, I think that's that's where it comes in. You you can you can definitely have open standards to facilitate all that communication while differentiating yourselves around you know service reliability um, and and different product features and and functions. You know, I believe project developers really are the unsung heroes of the energy sector. And it's high time we had our own project management software built for us, by us. Email, Dropbox, MS Project, you know, they might help you get by, but truly in a post-COVID-19 world, we need to move faster online. With decades of experience moving projects from idea to operation, our friends at Enion know firsthand just how painful it can be relying on generalist software to get projects over the line. So I'd like to encourage you to give Enion Project Manager 
a try for free today. Enjoy enhanced security and cooperation with your entire team. Centralize your tasks, teams, files, and financials all in one secure place. Deliver more projects fast and at a lower cost. Go sign up today for free at www.nenian.co. Are there specific standards that EV Connect and your partners are driving for that is meeting with resistance in the marketplace? Well, I'll, I'll name a couple of them that are that are starting to become uh, broadly adopted. Uh, you know, one of them is called uh, OCPP, which is uh, Open Charge Point Protocol. That is basically a method through which software communicates with hardware, you know. So uh, a, a platform such as ourselves can communicate with the charging stations in the field and we can get data from those charging stations. We can control those charging stations. Most uh, charging stations out there uh, support this OCPP protocol, but there's still some of them out there that are closed architectures that that do not allow uh, or don't support these uh, OCPP protocols. What that basically means is it becomes difficult, if not impossible, for a software manager like EV Connect to manage a station that is closed. And, and, and you don't get that, um, uh, the ability to, to have portability between you know, software managers or, or hardware stations. And that's something that we think is really important in the market. You know, Tesla last week announced that they're going to open their architecture. Uh, is that the kind of thing that you're referring to? Like it is open charge point protocol standard now. And like what complications arise? Is this really big news or is it an also ran? Like what, what do you think there? I think it's big news. How they go about doing it, I think, is is going to be is yet to be determined. Uh, right now, their stations don't support uh, this open charge point protocol. So, how how they are going to, you know, enable that that interconnectedness and interoperability uh, is something that we're very interested in working with them on. So, with that in mind, you know, I've I had this conversation recently about about the insurance industry. My friend from Resurity kind of talked about the differences between different players in the market. And I invite you uh, along the same line because just on the surface, I can name you know three companies in the EV space that start with the word EV, EV Connect, EV Go, EV Box, and then ChargePoint. There's Electrify America, Volkswagen's network. We've got uh, folks who are working only on uh, V2G hardware and software. We've got folks that are, folks that are focused only on as in ChargePoint, a charging network. Help us understand kind of what the difference is in the different contenders in this space. And you don't have to give the value proposition for each one of them, but help me understand at least where EV Connect sits among those various competitors or would-be collaborators. Yeah, in some ways, it's actually not that dissimilar to the solar space um, in, 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 in some ways, in that you have some folks that are primarily project developers, you know, go, go out, find sites, you know, that, that want to be hosts for charging stations, put together an integrated solution and, and uh, either own them or let the site hosts own them. There's the equipment manufacturers, you know, you mentioned a, a couple, ABB, EV Box, BTC Power, others that are really just focused uh, on developing 
charging station models to handle a variety of applications from you know, uh, fleet charging to public charging to commercial charging, you know, the, the whole gamut of those residential charging. There are the software players um, that, that are uh, putting together the, uh, the network platform to basically be the nexus point between the charging station, the site host, the utility, and managing all the data and control, you know, between, between the, the various stakeholders. And then I think what you're starting to see an emerging class of folks is on the, there, there's more uh, innovation that's happening on the own and operate and financing models. So, you, you, you know, with, with things like tax credits and, and, you know, the ability to monetize different revenue streams, you know, they're starting to become an opportunity to, to um, have a more of a financial uh, investor class that will, that will be, you know, either own and operate these, these projects uh, through long-term agreements or, or lease them in some form. So that, that, that is also happening. So I don't think anything I told you is 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 that different from what we've seen, you know, in the in in the solar industry, with the possible exception of this kind of network software management piece. Solar did not have the need to interact with the actual drivers, you know, the actual users. Solar was much more passive, you know, once you're installed, it's 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 essentially feeding electricity into the grid or into the building. Whereas with with EV charging, you have this utilization factor. You know, you, you someone has to be charging a vehicle at a charging station, and and that creates a whole different dynamic. I'm actually really glad that you brought it back around to. It shows that you're a good uh, manager of consensus and understanding the audience. And you know, most of our listeners are in some way either trying to figure out how to add EV charging to their business because they deploy solar projects for homeowners and businesses right up your alley in your past life, or they're trying to figure out if they can make a career shift towards energy storage or the EV charging and, and sort of EV infrastructure boom. I have a hypothesis that, you know, companies like, uh, it's more than a hypothesis because it's in their uh, filings, but companies like Sunrun and Sonova and, um, you know, before Sunrun acquired them, Vivint have been very actively thinking about the ability to redeploy that energy on behalf of their customers or users back to the grid as a service. And Tesla has said, namely back, you know, now with the famous blackouts of Texas in the early, early part of the year, that you can't sell your electric vehicle power back to the grid. Uh, Ford, thank you, came out and said, oh, yes, you can. And we will empower our users to be able to do that. To help me understand then, uh, or and and maybe I'm going to leave it to you to help kind of tie in how us as solar centric thinkers might look at the EV world. But like, where where does vehicle to grid actually fit in here? Is it as far off as folks have said it is? If not, uh, can you give some tangible examples? I'll handle that question in in kind of two separate responses because I, I figured you might a couple of different uh, issues on your first point around you know, helping solar companies or, or individuals that, that are employed in the solar industry to, to kind of move into the EV charging space. I think it's, it's extremely important, actually, that, um, that this happens. You know, the interconnectedness between either on-site solar with uh, energy storage and, and EV charging is a natural fit. 
you know, a, a just putting a, um, you know, a level two charger on your home creates seven kilowatts of, of uh, additional demand that, 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 that goes into the home. So once you start utilizing that charger, if you're a solar developer that is, that is selling a residential solution, you can upsize the, the size of that solar system accordingly. And, and so that, that increases overall deal size. And if you're not doing it, you know, your, your competitor, you know, in the industry will do it. So the urgency that solar developers should feel, um, to, to become conversant and incorporate EV charging, uh, is, is now, I mean, I can't, I can't think of a single facility type that, it, that would not benefit from having on-site EV charging, you know, as part of their operations, whether for, you know, residential and multi-unit dwelling applications or commercial applications, where they're looking to provide charging for their employees or guests or, or, or uh, customers, or, or to fleet where, where the, the need to charge, you know, delivery vehicles or trucks or school buses or transit buses adds a huge amount of energy load you know to 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 that operation so if i sound like a cheerleader it's because i am it, it, it it's it's very very important for solar developers to get in front of this curve today and incorporate ev charging in into their solution set switching gears to the v to g question this is such an exciting opportunity that vehicle electrification affords. Every single electric vehicle is going to have a battery in it that is has some spare capacity. We'll always have some ability to inject energy back into the grid. In some cases, that will be more practical than others. You know, a school bus that's lying idle in the in the summer months is, is just a uh, just a perfect use case to fill up that 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 battery during cheap periods of times and and you know inject that into the grid during periods of grid need or grid stress uh passenger vehicles you know could also be you know v to g capable to either inject energy back into your house or onto the grid and and you know get get paid for that so the opportunity right now is you know the theoretical opportunity is is tremendous what has to happen in practice is is setting up the safety, the monetary incentives, the tariffs, the the rule, basically the rulemaking and the policy stuff that I said was so important at the at the outset of our discussion because this this has to grow up from a science experiment uh, and a technical feasibility into into something that is. That, that that can be you know used as a matter of course and and for that we need the right rules and policies um, and then we have to get the vehicle manufacturers you know to on board with the grid operators to 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 really bring this to scale once again I think brilliantly and eloquently um, expressed thank you for that uh, I've as usual more questions uh, that that are that come up with this. You know, I've heard, I've asked a lot of folks and I'm, I, I remember asking, I'll say the head of North America for a major utility who has a very well expressed uh, and existing charging network, first in Europe, now in the US, uh, anyone in this space would know what I'm talking about. But he said, yeah, V2G is still a little ways off. Uh, yet we have 
examples. You know, you guys have one we'll talk about, uh, but we've got companies right here uh, in my neck of the woods in, in Charlottesville area, Fermata, working with Nissan, actively uh, engaged in helping the Nissan Leaf platform be able to deliver power back to the grid. I'd like for you to share the example that you all have of, of an active um, project deployed in Indiana, but how does uh, how do companies like Fermata partner with or benefit from AV Connect or are they in fact competitors? Walk me through sort of the ecosystem that exists right now and the challenges that you guys are helping overcome. But also I'd love for you to use the the project in Indiana as an example of like what's actually happening. Yeah, the, the, that's actually a good place to start. Uh, the, the project uh, that we're working on in Indiana is a collaboration with the Indiana Battery uh, Innovation Center um, and a company called ESN. And it's basically looking to deploy some fast charging stations that can uh, connect with vehicles. The, the chargers will be able to determine what the state of charge of those vehicles are, how much energy is available in the battery to potentially inject into the grid. Our software will, will be able to take commands from the utilities or the grid operators uh, saying, we need X amount of energy at, at this time to be put into the grid. So we'll, we'll take those commands, we'll communicate with the charging stations and the vehicles and basically facilitate that vehicle to grid transfer of, of energy. It's really an exciting project because you get into the details of how each of those elements interacts with the other. <laughs> and, and you get into standards, you get into stakeholders, and, and you have to basically put the, the, the jigsaw pieces together to facilitate that end-to-end -end solution. I love to see these types of uh, projects being done by some of our competitors and other people in the industry because we're collectively building a, a knowledge base together that, you know, folks like, uh, you know, EPRI and, 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 and others that are, that are, you know, kind of global facilitators of, of these industries can, can help to uh, really pull together how to scale these in a, in a more, more effective fashion by bringing the automakers, the, the equipment manufacturers, the software and the utilities together as we move forward. I'm inspired by some of the connections I'm drawing from your very earliest work on demand side management. Obviously, like it's nothing new for utilities to be able to reach out and tap, you know, the the homeowner on the shoulder and say, hey, I'd like to um, tell you to stop using your air conditioner. And in fact, we'll put a device on it that makes us uh, capable of turning it off. Uh, in this case, it's actually, hey, I'd like to borrow some of that energy we've identified that you have there. Um, uh, have the Have the pieces been worked out? around the compensation model? I feel like that's one of the areas that's just so complicated. It is not, to be candid. The, the compensation model is like it has been in other aspects of our industry. It'll probably be on a, on a utility by utility, on a you know, region by region basis. Um, it won't be a one size fits all solution. Um, and so this is why kind of that that engagement with uh, the on the regulatory side with bringing together the lessons learned from these these early pilots is, is is so important and i think we're starting to see that happen you've mentioned a few takeaways early in this conversation but i wonder about how as you got 
further into areas of non-expertise, you acquired mentorship in those areas. So like, so how did you think about getting uh, mentorship and what lessons or takeaways have those important mentors in your life or career had on your direction? I've learned so much from so many people along the way. I can't even begin to quantify it. The, the mentors that really come to mind are those that help me expand my horizons. And, and that can be from anything from, you know, kind of introducing me to, to either new concepts or new technologies, or even in how I organize my own, my own ideas and my own thoughts. One I'll name, you know, by, by name is a gentleman named John Mahoney. John was one of the leaders at Chevron Energy Solutions and then later became um, the, the president at NG, um, uh, which, which acquired uh, the, uh, Chevron. And John taught me so much about risk management. <laughs> you, you know, as, as, a, as a business developer, you're always thinking about the art of the possible, John uh, encouraged me to to think about how do we also manage risk with a, with a particular with a, with a particular project or, or an opportunity and and that th- those are the, you know that could be anything from technical to financial to operational to you know you name it and and that's something that 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 I've ingrained you know in, in how I look at opportunities you know. The, it's not just the the art of the possible, but but how you manage something, you know, once it's once it's deployed, and 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 that's something that John taught me at a at a you know kind of mid stage in my career, which which I found very helpful. Is there anything in particular that uh, for you is a bit uh, still range extending, like you're looking around a corner and and uh, you see that this gap exists, this roadblock that we need to move out of the way? What do you believe is the next big problem that we've got to solve, not just with clean energy, but clean infrastructure? I think we're still thinking very much in a silo mentality. For for us to really solve the big problems, we have to think about interconnectedness. You know, so you know, when I was in, when we were in the solar industry, we we focused on the generation side of the equation, and you know let's let's get as much clean energy generation you know as possible onto the grid. And the, on the EV side right now, it, it's all about putting charging stations, you know, uh, making them convenient. It's this cross section of generation combined with grid management. With the with the umbrella goal being you know uh, sustainable climate related policy, th- it's that intersection that has to come together, and there needs to be more thought around the the incorporation of generation clean generation with energy storage with with the electrifying of transportation and how how all of that comes together, and we're at a very early stage, honestly, in, in that regard. And I, I think that that's going to be the challenge, you know, in the, in the coming uh, decade. So, Ram, you have had the, the opportunity in your career to uh, see a lot of technology come and go. Uh, I'd love to know, for through your lens, is there anything in particular around climate tech that's really just gotten you jazzed in the last six to 12 months, like the coolest thing that you've seen? I love the idea of the um, of the Jetsons car. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> you know the 
the the the ability for like um, the flying car flying car and i got exposed to a company that is working on some pilots in uh in vancouver uh, B- british columbia uh kind of public private consortium and wow what an exciting uh you know just moonshot you know uh, as we think about the future to take take transportation from where it is now to my gosh making it three dimensional and 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 you know and then continue to make it clean and it's uh, such a, so many exciting frontiers that we haven't even started to tap it's it's just a, such a great time it is i had when i had andrew bb on uh, he talked about their investments in flying cars at obvious ventures uh it's an episode i would encourage folks to go listen to because you talk about you want to talk about future casting like we've all grown up with this idea of flying cars and it is way closer to reality than any of us ever imagined i mean just in we're in an era where bezos and musk and uh and um and branson are launching themselves in this space themselves or their or their roadsters and like we're we're it's palpable and tangible the change in our society in the next 10, 15, 20 years. It's just unbelievable. Um, I mentioned the book Range. I'd love to know if for you, there is a book recently or uh, historically that's had a big impact in the way that you think, or maybe you've gifted it to others to say, hey, here, let's let's retune how you think about things. I'm sure this has been mentioned on your podcast in the past, but um, the David Wallace Wells book, The Uninhabitable Earth, has had a profound impact on me. It it has ratcheted up the urgency and made me push the panic button. Um, just in terms of the 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 speed at which we have to act, you know, the 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 impacts that cl- the climate change is going to have is are going to be so dramatic that you know we just have to increase the urgency. We we just have to. You know, you know, move things at a much faster pace. You know, in in and bring everything to action to to, to bear to make that to happen. Uh, so that that's one I would uh, strongly recommend. Yeah, yeah, it has been recommended uh, far too seldom, uh, and so I'm glad that you bring it up, and I, I love that you include that. Just a couple of more questions before we wrap. I believe that. We are what we consistently do. And I'm curious if there's anything in particular in the process of growing up, in the process of, of maturing as a business person that you've sort of hacked your routine to incorporate either a morning or evening or both routine that helps you show up as uh, the, you know, the very, uh, I would say, well-tuned business development person that you are. I've um, either naturally or concertedly, you know, made it a priority to 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 be well networked and 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 that's just not accepting a connection from linkedin or exchanging a business card at a conference it is putting time and and effort to to follow up with 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 key contacts thought leaders etc so that that's something i've i've really spent a lot of time uh, and effort i i can go connect with people that that I may have interacted with 30 years ago you know and and we can we can come together and 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 pick up right where you know we left off so I, I for for anyone that is kind of in an early stage keeping alive uh active um you know professional network is is so important 
Um, and so along that line, obviously the online tools such as LinkedIn and such, but go to conferences, go to trade shows, you know, you know, make yourselves available to others. And then also, you know, feed it back. Um, I, on a weekly basis, I probably talked to at least one or two folks that are young professionals that, that reach out to me that, that want to pick my brain. And I do the best I can to, to make myself available for those discussions and, and, you know, uh, help to guide folks, you know, that are either looking to get into a, this industry or, or generally, you know, want to, want to see what my career arc has been. I love that. Well, they'll now have, you'll be able to send them over to this uh, recording. With that in mind, uh, we always like to send folks over to LinkedIn. So folks will be able to check in with you there and connect. Hopefully uh, you'll have the time to uh, accept those connection requests that I'm sure will pour in. Uh, let's end today with uh, what I call a bold prediction. And this may tie somewhat to, um, to some of the things you've said previously, but what one thing do you, Ram Ambatapudi, see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball for the next 18 months or maybe the next uh, 10 years? Well, I think the, the, that that notion of uh, the interconnectedness of, of, of the grid, it, it, to me, is, is, is the most exciting opportunity, you know, because we're just throwing a whole new dynamic into the equation, which is transportation electrification on top of pre-existing goals of renewable energy generation and, and grid stability, you know, and such, we're throwing a whole new wrench into that equation. So, so to me, that opportunity for, for uh, tying all, all of that together into a dynamic new grid, you know, I think is, is, is quite exciting. Fantastic. Ram Ambetapudi is the VP of Business Development at EV Connect. And as we've heard today, was one of the connectors who helped make that company uh, come together 14 years in a 12-year-old industry. I hope that you all have learned from this. Ram, I'm in I'm eternally grateful for the education that I've received from you today. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great talking to you today, Nico. All right, Solar Warriors, I am drenched in knowledge and gratitude to my friend and now yours, Mr. Ram Ambatapudi. I hope that you soaked up and internalized the lessons learned. There are so many. I'm going to have to write a LinkedIn Pulse post or uh, maybe you will write one and you'll tag me and tell the world how much you learned in this episode. Well, if you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can head over to mysuncast.com where you'll find the resources and highlights in the show notes from this and every discussion along with social media links, book recommendations, and so much more. Like I said, that's at mysuncast.com. That's also, as I mentioned before, in the intro where you can find out more about our Power Up Central podcast lounge and media zone presented by Ravon and iSun and a number of other amazing companies that have come alongside and helped us lift this idea, this project out of obscurity. It's going to be right there in the show floor. If you're going to SPI, I'd love it if you would come by and see us booth 2623. You could also text me at 310-634-1780 and let me know what you plan to do in New Orleans and how we can get together and hang out or just generally keep in touch. That's 310-634-1780. I hope that you'll take the opportunity to let me know what you think of Suncast 
who you think should be guests. You can always email me, nico at mysuncast.com to connect me with someone that you think should be a guest on the show. It is such a treat when I do get to hear from you. And I know that Ram and I are gonna learn so much more from you about how this episode resonated with you when you go find the post that we've dropped in LinkedIn and let us know exactly how you are learning and growing from this conversation with Ron. I do hope you'll again show up next week as we dive into more tactical, practical episodes on Tuesdays and long form insightful conversations with founders and CEOs taking on the clean energy revolution every Thursday. Thanks once again to our sponsors who help make this content free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you can learn how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like Enian and so many others have right here on this episode. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>